This is The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. David is the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Casa Grande in Casa Grande, Arizona. Our good deeds, our works, are simply the product of salvation, not the process of gaining salvation. God's gift of grace in our life, though, should bring about in our life righteous acts. God's gift of grace in our life should bring about holy choices in our life. But those are the effects flowing out of grace, not the process that produces grace. Okay? Pastor David will make a very important statement today. He'll explain to us that our good deeds or our good works are actually a product of salvation. They come as a result of a transformed heart. As we submit to God and allow His Spirit and grace to work through us, we'll begin to do what's right. Our hearts will be changed. We'll begin to desire to do what's pleasing to our Heavenly Father. And we'll be given the power it takes to walk in obedience to His Word. Let's join Pastor David in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 2, with our continuing study entitled, An Effective Grace. I want you to be able to look at these verses this morning, to be able to really to savor the delicacies of what the Lord has for us in these verses, to be able to literally kind of experience even the textures of each morsel as we partake of, I believe, a divine meal this morning as we're looking here in Ephesians chapter 2. Now, last week I spoke of the impact of particularly these three verses and others like it in the 16th century Protestant Reformation, and how really because of not only these verses but others like it, all of Christianity was changed, the church was changed, literally the world was changed. But actually... 200 years prior to the Protestant Reformation, in the 1300s, again, these verses and others like it, brought about a whole new and a whole fresh understanding in the hearts of men like English scholar, the theologian, the translator, and a lay pastor by the name of John Wycliffe, as well as a Czech priest, a philosopher, and a reformer by the name of John Hus, or John Hus, we call him in English. John Huss, as a matter of fact, was burned at the stake by the church because he dared question the doctrines and the understandings of the church in reference to the things that we'll be speaking about today and what we spoke about last week. Also, even John Wycliffe, they exhumed his body and took his bones after he had already been dead and buried, took his bones and burned them because of what John Wycliffe stood for and how his understanding of these verses were and in direct uh, conflict with what the church's doctrine was at that point in time. The movement took on a whole new flow, a whole new life, when on October 31st in 1517, this German Catholic monk, this priest, this theologian by the name of Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the church door there in Wittenberg. Again, with those 95 theses, he was explaining, again, the theological and the moral problems he had with what was going on with the actions and the understandings of the church. And it was his church. He, he was a monk. He was a priest of the church at that time. And as he looked at the scripture and looked at the actions of the church, he said, this can't be. This, we cannot continue this way. 
completely opposed to what the heart and the spirit and the meaning and the depth of what the scriptures declare to us. Well, along with Luther, there were men like Heinrich Bullinger and Ulrich Zwingli from Sweden, Philip Melanchthon from Germany, French theologian John Calvin, which many of you have heard of, Scottish clergyman John Knox, another familiar name in church history, and a host of others who literally changed the very direction of Christianity. And because Christianity took this major change, the world began to change because of it. These men had tasted the fullness of the meal, and I believe that they wanted to share it with the world. Along with the doctrinal issues that they dealt with, there were those five points that we mentioned last week, and I'm going to bring them back to your attention this week, just again for your refreshment. They were what were called the, the five solas of the Reformation. If you remember, there was sola scriptura. Scripture alone is our authority, not man, not the councils. Not the decrees of the church, but Scripture alone is the authority. Sola gratia, grace alone. As the only method of salvation, it's only by the grace of God. And we spoke quite in depth with that last week. Sola fide, faith alone is being the vehicle or the channel of our salvation. Again, we spoke a lot about that last week. Solus Christus, Christ alone as the only source of our salvation. Not through rituals, not through ceremonies, not through the blessings of the church, not through anything other than Christ alone. And then the last one, sola Dio gloria, to God alone be the glory in all of our lives, that our lives are to be lived totally and completely for the glory of God. That's truly a five-course meal, and uh, for some it was very difficult for them to be able to digest that meal. And because of that, men like Luther, uh, Huss, uh, Melanchthon, Knox, all of these guys, they were, many of them faced imprisonment. Many of them were forced into exile, and, and a large host of them actually lost their lives. We dealt specifically with those middle three points, which were found actually in our scripture in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. The fact that it's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that our salvation is. Well, look again with me as we read those verses. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of works lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We need to know, we need to remember that our good deeds, our works, are simply the product of salvation, not the process of gaining salvation. God's gift of grace in our life, though, should bring about in our life righteous acts. God's gift of grace in our life should bring about holy choices in our life. But those are the effects flowing out of grace, not the process that produces grace. Okay, It's at this very point that, again, some of the writers of the Reformation, some of the writings of the Apostle Paul, some would say that these guys stand in conflict with what James says in James' letters. Take the moment here and keep your place in Ephesians. Turn over to James chapter 2, and 
I'll explain to you the, the difficulty that some have with what the Reformers declared and the interpretation that some have of what Paul is speaking. In James chapter 2, and we won't read all, but uh, go down to verse 14. James chapter 2, verse 14. James writes, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? He asks your question, Can faith save him? Well, if we stopped right there, we'd say, Well, that's exactly what we said last week, wasn't it? That was the grace of God through faith. But continue on with me. He says in verse 15, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you don't give them the things that are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, listen to this, James writes, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Does James declare that it's both faith and works that bring about salvation? I don't believe so. I don't believe that that's what he is saying in the context of all that he's saying. I believe that what he is saying is that true faith, saving faith, brings about these works. A saving and true faith must be real and alive, and the demonstration of that faith in our life, a faith that's alive and real, will have and must have some sort of an effect on our lives and how we live our lives. Look further on in James, still in verse uh, chapter 2, but now in verse 18. James writes, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there's one God? Well, you do well. Even the devils believe, and they tremble. What he's saying here is that the person that simply says, Oh, I believe. Oh, I signed the card back a number of years ago. Oh, I I went forward at a a service back when I was uh, back in high school or as a young child. Oh, I was baptized in the church. What he's saying, those that simply have this declaration that says, I believe, and yet there's no real and true repentance, no confession in their life, no surrendered commitment to the Lord Jesus, no truly changed life. James is saying you're you're no better off than the lost, because truly you are. Because there was never a born-again experience. There was a wording that came out of your mouth, a puppeting of perhaps someone says, well, if you repeat this prayer, you'll be saved. Well, beloved, repeating a prayer isn't the problem. It's the heart issue that is the problem. If the heart isn't changed, the repeating of a prayer will do absolutely nothing for you. You know what? I believe that Paul would agree wholeheartedly, and so do I, with what James is saying. Still, James chapter 2, verse 20. But do you know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Wait a minute. You just said faith only. Beloved, understand that again in the context of all that James is saying, it is faith only, but it has to be a saving faith. 
looking at the context, understanding what he's speaking. He's speaking about the importance of a changed life. The life of an individual who says that they have faith, and in that faith we see a dynamic change going on from the inside out. What he's doing is he's speaking against what's called easy believism. I would ask the question this morning. You guys don't want to go to hell, do you? How many of you want to go to heaven? Would not nearly every hand in the auditorium be raised? The only way to get to heaven is to receive Jesus. You want to receive Jesus. And nearly every hand would be raised. And we see this so many times. What looks to be a mass conversion, but is it really and truly changed hearts? If the question were a little bit different, and said, how many of you are willing to die and surrender everything that you have? How many of you are willing to give everything that you have and that you own? How many of you are willing to leave everything behind to follow the man that was crucified? Well, that's not nearly as tempting of an offer. How many of you are willing to suffer the persecution, the pain, and the trials of following Christ? You see, that's it's a different kind of a question. Easy believism does not save anyone. He knows, James knows as he's writing these things, that a true and a living faith comes to an individual. They will be changed. He goes on, verse 25, Likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. James is declaring that if our faith is real and alive, it will have an effect on us that changes both our inside as well as our outside person. And he's not in opposition to what Paul writes. As a matter of fact, we could look at it as actually being a juxtaposition that, again, he's laid alongside of. It's like two complementary entrees within the same meal, the same meal that we're enjoying together, looking from two different directions, but in essence saying the same thing. Both of these men, led by the Holy Spirit, they're serving up dishes that complement each other. The same meal that speaks of the same reality of the truth of a living and real faith. That's why Paul adds to verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2 that verification of the necessity and the reality of good works within the lives of Christians. Look back in Ephesians again in verse 10. After telling us how much our salvation is the work of God's grace and through faith, he then expresses what that faith looks like. In verse 10 he says, we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for what, church? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're to walk in good works because God has changed our lives from being sons and daughters of disobedience and again the children of wrath. Now we are the children of God. And therefore God says, no longer live like a child of hell. Live like you are a child of the king. Those choices and directions of our life need to change. And when Paul tells us that we are his workmanship, he uses a beautiful Greek word, poema. And poema has that meaning of the thing that's made or the workmanship or the craftsmanship. And it's where we get our word poem 
for. You are God's poem. He's written you specifically. He's designed you and purposed you intentionally. When we have the workmanship of God in our lives, beloved, people around us ought to be able to see whose we are. When we ourselves demonstrate the heart and the passion and the desires of God in our works and in our deeds, it's a demonstration of what's already been done in our lives. We were created for this very purpose. The world would be able to look at us and realize the truth of who God is. This isn't a salvation of works. It's a salvation unto works. Listen to what Paul tells us. Very similar words over in the book of Titus, chapter 3. And you can turn there or just listen. Titus, chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient. We were deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and through the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Did you catch all that Paul gave in that short little verse? The kindness and the love of God, not the works of righteousness that we've done, but it's according to His mercy that He saved us. We're justified by His grace. Paul again expounds upon that. All of these are in perfect alliance with what he's saying here in Ephesians chapter 2. But just like in Ephesians 2 verse 10, here in Titus, Paul doesn't stop with easy believism. He goes on in verse 8 of Titus chapter 3, and he says, This is a faithful saying. And these things I want to affirm constantly. I want to tell you over and over again. I want to repeat these things to you in order that you might understand them more clearly, in order that you might grasp them. He says that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Did you catch that? I want to affirm it constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. That means it is a choice that you and I are making on a continual basis. I need to be careful to maintain good works. That means I need to put my flesh in check continually, continually. I can't just say, well, Lord, that's just the way I am. No, that's not the way I am. That's the way that I was. But I am a new creation in Christ. The Word says that old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. And now by the empowering of the Holy Spirit, I can determine in my own heart, I don't want to live that way. I want to live for His glory. I don't want to live like a child of hell. I want to live like a child of the King, my King Jesus. That's why Paul says we're His workmanship. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works. And some of you say, okay, I get that. I get it. I understand. You've pounded it in enough. 
So just, just give me a list and I'll go get busy. Basically, if that's your attitude, then you've probably missed the whole point. It's not as much about a list as it is a heart that desires to be found faithful in all things. You see, with a list, I can go down, check it off, check it off, check it off, check it off. Okay, I'm good for that. And I don't need to worry about relationship at all. And yet God says, no, it's not about a list. It is all about relationship about living my life in a way that pleases Him. Now, don't get me wrong. I could give you a list. Uh, churches and religion are real good at giving lists, aren't they? As a matter of fact, all through history, the church has given lists. And if you do this, and if you go here, and if you take this, and if you do those things, then at the end, don't worry, you'll be fine without ever looking at the heart. I could give you a list. I could say, hey, what you need to do is you need to teach Sunday school. Hey, you need to tithe a little bit more. Hey, you need to serve as an usher or a greeter. Hey, you need to tithe a little bit more. Hey, uh, you need to work in the nursery or you need to serve on this committee or maybe you need to tithe a little bit more. There, you know, there's, there's a lot of easy lists that we could give. And it makes the religious rulers feel good because everybody's obeying, but it does absolutely nothing for your heart in relationship to Christ. I think the question that all of us need to simply ask is, Lord, what would you have me to do? In my particular situation, with my particular place in life, with my giftings or in spite of my limitations, with my resources or lack of resources, what would you have me to do for your kingdom, Lord? And perhaps he might call you like he did Peter and James and John and Andrew and the rich young ruler. Do you realize that he gave all of those guys the same call? Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and the rich young ruler, it was all the same call. Leave everything and come and follow me. And the four boys, the disciples, they did that. But the rich young ruler, what did he do? He counted what he had. And to him, that was more valuable than following Jesus. And the word says that he went away sorrowful. What would the Lord have you do? Maybe your call might be similar to what the call was to the Samaritan woman or that Gadarean demoniac, and do you realize their call was the same too? Jesus says, no, don't come and follow me physically. Stay in the villages where you are at. Stay with the circle of influence of people that you know and live your life to my glory in order that the people around you might see the change of your heart might see the change of your actions and realize the truth and the reality of a mighty God who saves and changes individuals. Maybe you might be called like men like Ananias. You remember in the book of Acts, Ananias was the one who went to Saul of Tarsus right after his conversion. The Lord told him, hey, I want you to go see Saul of Tarsus. And Ananias said, oh, no, I, I know this Saul of Tarsus. He's, he's the guy that kills Christians. Hey, no, no, Lord, you're probably thinking a different guy or you're looking for a different guy. And the Lord says, no, it's you. I want you to go. And Ananias, he's probably saying, well, Lord, I bet he's got like tattoos on both arms. And, uh, you know, he's probably got spiked hair and he's like really weird. And No, go, because, again, I have a calling on his life. Are you willing to go where I tell you to go? And it's the same kind of calling that he has in Barnabas. Barnabas was a son of encouragement. That's what his name means. And he too went and he was the encouragement to 
Paul or Saul of Tarsus, who, again, the rest of the church says, no, we don't want this guy in our church. We don't want this guy in our church. And Barnabas was that kind of buffer, that go-between that says, no, he's okay. He really does love the Lord. Maybe God has simply called for you to, to reach some folks that are unreachable by the church. But it's people that you're able to reach in your area of influence and your abilities. And yeah, it might call that you need to go out of your comfort zone to be enabled to do that. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to The Open Word, the teaching ministry of Pastor David Landry of Calvary Chapel Casa Grande in Casa Grande, Arizona. To learn more about The Open Word, visit our website at theopenword.com. You can download today's teaching or subscribe to The Open Word Podcast. Subscribing to The Open Word Podcast is the best way to stay up to date with all the latest messages from David. To subscribe, log on to TheOpenWord.com, click on the podcast option on the homepage, or simply search for The Open Word in the iTunes Store. You can also give us a call if you'd like. That number to call is 520-836-9676. That's 520-836-9676. Another option to get in touch with us is to send us an email. Our email address is info at theopenword.com. That's info at theopenword.com. When you contact us, please let us know the call letters of the station you heard The Open Word on and how today's broadcast has blessed you. Your feedback helps us know the Lord's direction for this ministry. Once again, you've been listening to The Open Word with Pastor David Landry of Calvary Chapel in Casa Grande, Arizona. In the next edition of The Open Word... David will continue teaching through God's Word. So please make plans to join us again and may God richly bless you.